Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done about 610 of them now or so. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see them organized in several different ways. Um, this program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a, a page about other ways to donate other than PayPal. Um, my guest today is Peter Russell, and speaking of previous interviews, I had Peter on the show in 2014, so that would be about seven years ago, and I just listened to that interview yesterday and this morning, and I, I thought, wow, that was a lively conversation. Um, I hope I'm not losing my touch. I hope these interviews are still as interesting as that one was, because it really seemed like we went deep. I also felt like I talked too much, which I think I've improved upon over the years and curbed my enthusiasm a little bit. Anyway, Peter's a, a fun guy to talk to, as you'll see in this interview, and also I would recommend going back and listening to the previous one. Peter also listened to our previous interview today, and we'll try not to repeat ourselves too much in terms of what we talked about that time, so people can listen to both of them without hearing too much redundancy. But anyway, let me introduce Peter. Peter Russell is a leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He coined the term global brain with his 1980s bestseller of the same name, in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have on humanity. In fact, I read that book when it came out, and that was before I had met Peter. It was an interesting book. I think I read another of his books back then. His new book is called Letting Go of Nothing, and that's what we're going to be talking about mostly today. He's the author of 10 other books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science to God. We talked about that one quite a bit in the first interview. He studied theoretical physics, experimental psychology, and computer science at the University of Cambridge, and pioneered the introduction of personal growth programs to corporations, running courses for senior management on creativity, stress management, and sustainable development. Peter actually became a teacher of transcendental meditation with Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, which I also did. I think Peter did so about a year before I did, in 1969 or so, was it? and I became one in 1970. Neither of us are teaching it today, but we both credit that whole experience with having provided tremendous benefit to our lives. His mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions, and to disseminate their teachings on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. I just want to mention briefly some of the things we talked about in the first interview. We talked about the fundamental nature of consciousness, as opposed to matter being fundamental. We talked about the predominance of the materialist paradigm in today's world, and how paradigms shift, and how we felt that a consciousness as fundamental paradigm might be upending the materialist paradigm. We talked about the Yoga Sutras, particularly the second verse, which is um, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, something like that. We talked about whether the human mind and nervous system properly developed can be reliable tools for scientific in investigation, independent of other tools. And we talked about something that might be akin to intelligent design, which I think we might talk a little bit more about today, whether nature is orchestrated in some fundamental 
way by intelligence, some kind of universal intelligence. Today we're going to start out by talking about Peter's book. Why don't you hold up the book for a second, Peter? Letting Go of Nothing. Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature is the subtitle. Cool. It's got a forward by Eckhart Tolle, which is very nice too. Yeah, it's published by his publishing company, isn't it? It's published by New World Library, and they have an Eckhart Tolle imprint, so published by them. But it's books he particularly likes, writes a forward to them. How did it come so to his attention? The publishers. I mean, they, they actually they ran were, it by him and said, how would you like to? Right. Well, they, came, they have a good relationship with him because they were the first commercial publisher to publish The Power of Now. He self-published himself, and then they took it on before it went really mm. big. So they've kept that relationship going, and they started this Eckhart Tolle imprint. So they just contacted him and said, hey, is this a book you'd like to endorse? Great. That's nice. Or write a forward to. Yeah. Yeah. So Letting Go of Nothing, what does that mean? How did you come up with that title? It was years ago I came up with the title, actually. It was during a meditation, just feeling that we're not letting go of things so much. But what we're letting go of is our view of things. And letting go is more like a change of mind than letting go, whether it's letting go of things like a car that's been dented or whatever, or a relationship or material things, or even letting go of thoughts and feelings. What we're letting go of is how we see things. And it's like the lens through which we see the world. So letting go is really about changing the lens through which we see things. So it's a, ch- it's a change of mind rather than, try- rather than trying to change what you're thinking or feeling. It's a change of the mindset that's behind what you're thinking or feeling. Yeah, kind of reminds yeah. me of that phrase of uh, putting on shoes rather than trying to pave the world with leather. <laughs> right, yeah. It's also a slight pun. It's letting go of no thing. Right. What we're letting go of is not things. So we're letting go of no thing, but the no thing is the lens through which we see things. And um, just before I started reading the book or listening to it, because I converted it to audio and listened to it, I thought of a couple of questions, which you actually ended up starting the book with. I'll put it this way. My biggest lettings go. There have been some moments in my life where there was a huge release. They took me by surprise. I didn't realize they were about to happen. And it wasn't willful, really. It just happened spontaneously. And I was kind of amazed by how tightly gripped I had been by the thing that I had now been released from. And by a thing, I don't necessarily mean an attachment to a particular object or anything. It was just sort of a bondage, a level of bondage within my being, within my experience that just sort of popped. And all of a sudden, I I tasted this newfound freedom that seemed quite contrasting. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, the first, the very first section of the book is this little story of myself and how... The person I was living with at the time, we were having a a little rough period for a couple of days. We were sort of in a a disagreement over something. And I tried letting go and, you know, tried forgetting about it or thinking it would all soon blow over. But, you know, I was sort of still feeling uptight about it. And she was in her own world about it. And then I, I just had this idea just to ask, is there another way of seeing this situation? Sort of knowing intellectually that that was part of it, how I was seeing things. And so just asking that question. And it was instant. It was totally surprising, as you say, an instant. It's like with an instant, I mean, a second, everything shifted. And I just saw here was another human being working her own way through life, dealing with me and all my stuff. And 
instantly compassion returned, love returned, and I felt at ease. And I realized, God, why hadn't I seen this before? It's so obvious. And the reason I hadn't seen it before was I was so uptight, so caught up in my own reaction and taking my own reaction seriously. That prevented me from just seeing a whole different, much more loving way of seeing the situation. That was a change of the way I see things. I was letting go of all the stuff, the judgment and all the how I wanted her to be, all that stuff. I was letting go of that just by the fact that the lens had shifted. I was seeing her through different eyes and the letting go just disappeared. There wasn't anything to let go of anymore. I wasn't letting go of anything. It just all went. I didn't have to work on my stuff. Was that Robert Burns who said, oh, would some power of the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us? Something like that. Remember that poem? Yeah. I don't remember it, but I've heard the line. Yeah. Because we do get so locked into our perspectives, you know, and, uh, and if uh, we could really yeah. see ourselves the way others see us from other perspectives, it might be quite a surprise. Yes. I think we're, we're very much locked into our own view of ourselves. And maybe not just, um, I mean, I think probably mainly, I mean, as you're suggesting, other people probably see us more positively than we see ourselves because we we see our faults inside we know how what a load of rubbish we are inside and other people don't see that you know that's one thing that goes on with us but also equally they may actually see stuff that we need to work oh, on yeah i mean we could be a total jerk and think that we're just great you know i can think of a yeah. few examples now one thing i i think about when we talk about this is Attachments are not just psychological. You know from your years with, with Maharishi, he talked a lot about what I think the Indians would call some scars, he called stresses, but he meant sort of deep impressions in the nervous system, chemical yeah. structure, abnormalities that bind us and condition our behavior and, and limit our consciousness and so on. It's not just a matter of snapping your fingers and letting go of those any more than it is like, let's say you're totally exhausted and you haven't slept. You can't just say, let go of your fatigue. You can't just do it. You need to sleep for a while and get some rest, and then your your body will repair the fatigue and replenish you. Yeah, there's some things we can just instantly let go of, but the approach I take in the book much more is, is not trying to get rid of something, but also doing the opposite of almost like welcoming it, becoming friends with it. And I talk about letting it in. What's actually going on here? So if, take the simple example of fatigue. We may not know how tired we are, but if you pause and stop and notice how you're feeling, you know, that feeling of fatigue, that's going to allow it in and you'll probably then be able to rest. But just to take any deep thing like this, I think the first thing to do for me and what I talk about in the book is go to the body because the body has so much information in a way and just to notice what is happening in the body and letting it in because what we tend to do with things is we tend to push them away you know if i let in this anger i might go and punch someone if i let in the sadness i'm going to burst out and sobbing in public so what i suggest is the first thing we need to do is actually let in how it's feeling what's going on what's happening in the body and as we open up i find i discover lots of things i hadn't noticed that can begin the process of allowing things to relax. Because often it's our resistance that's holding things in place. When we open up to what's there, or sometimes it's not just the body, it's like opening up to what is the story we're telling ourselves. I mean, that's more the psychological thing you're talking about. But the deeper body stuff, I think if we open to it, feel it, almost, I say, become friends with it and notice what's there, that begins a softening of our reaction. And I think there's a general thing here. I think it's Carl Jung who said, what you resist persists. 
in the sense of what you don't allow into your consciousness stays there and keeps controlling you. You know, I think that as a society, millions of us work really hard at not letting things in. You see people staring at their devices. I heard on the radio yesterday or something that people actually look at their phones four hours a day, use their cell phones four hours a day. So there's that and there's the opioid epidemic and there's all the other entertainments and distractions and and things. People are working really hard at not letting things in. And there's a pressure from those things that want to be let in, and we keep pushing them down, like trying to push a beach ball underwater or something. Yeah. And I think it's because partly we don't want to experience them, but also we get so seduced by phones or whatever it is that we don't give them the opportunity. I mean, I, I know I can be guilty, guilty of this. I suddenly realized, what have I been doing for the last half hour? I've been on my phone following lines or playing some Sudoku or something. And it's like, it's isolating me from the present moment. It's just taking us right out of the present moment the whole time. And so if our attention is there, if our, atten- if our interest is on that, then we can't be open to what's actually happening in the moment. I mean, I notice I have little signs left around the house saying pause for myself. And the instruction for me is just to pause for a moment. And it's usually, they're left like there's one on the staircase, there's one on the door. And it's usually because I'm already not doing something. It doesn't occur in the middle of talking to you or answering an email, but then I get up and do something and it says pause. And I just find pausing just for five seconds. I just pause and almost like pausing my thinking as well, wherever I was going. And almost always it's like, oh, there's that bird song. There's this, I start noticing the present moment. And so it's just a way of just coming back to the present. And and sometimes I just notice things that are going on in my body or other things that I, you know, should be attending to. It allows me to break that attachment to some particular mode of doing. So just getting out of the doing mode for a few seconds. But it, it's always surprising, just like, ah, I hadn't noticed that. It's fascinating just when you pause what is there, either what is there out in the world or what is there underneath my thinking. Yeah. We have little paws around the house, actually, eight of them to be precise, two dogs. (laughs) And they kind of keep us on our toes and let us know what's real. Maybe people can't be blamed for trying to suppress things or blot them out with distractions because you know a lot of these things are uncomfortable feelings and depression and various things that people don't want to feel i mean especially if we've suppressed them long enough or if for instance we've gotten addicted to something and then we have to experience these horrible feelings when the drug begins to wear off and so we want more drug to tamp it down i know in my own case when I ended my drug phase, I realized, I just had this realization one night, and I, I just thought, you can't spend your life trying to numb things down with drugs, or there's only one way out, and that is up, so to speak. And so I thought, that's it, I'm going to stop taking drugs and learn to meditate. And then naturally, as you've ex- probably experienced, and when you meditate, you do begin to feel things that you might have suppressed, but you're kind of setting up a condition in which they can be resolved in a deep way, and then you're free of them. Right, right. And also, I think we fear they're going to hurt us or be more disturbing than they actually are very often. Um, It's getting that line is often banded around 
pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And I think the suffering comes from the resistance. There's, there's something that's not right, whether it's a physical pain, an emotional pain or whatever. It's the resisting it that creates the suffering. And so when we stop the resisting, it's like that element of the suffering that goes away. We can just be with whatever that pain, disturbance, uncomfortable feeling is. That's what's going on there. I was reminded a bit of Byron Katie's phrase, loving what is, when I read that part of the book. But to a certain extent, she takes that to extremes, you know, and there are some horrible cases of someone whose child has died in some way, and she she seems much too sanguine about it. I mean, it's natural to feel grief or other such emotions when things like that happen. Yeah, and I, I touch on this briefly in the book. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding here in my opinion, accepting what is, for me, means accepting our experience in the present moment. And if my experience is one of grief, accepting that, that's how I'm actually feeling. If my experience is one of joy or something else, that's what is there. And it doesn't mean we have to accept the situation. There's a lot of injustice, there's things we want to change in the world, and we're each called to, to change things. So, It's really just about accepting what is my experience in the moment. That, to me, is what acceptance means, accepting what is, loving what is. I would call it more accepting what is right now in my experience, but not accepting the situation in the world. Maybe things need to change there. I like that Gita verse which says, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. And what is happening to me now is the fruits of my action. And so, you know, I have to experience them. But I also have control over my action now, which could result in better fruits or different fruits or something in the future if I use my opportunity wisely. What is this chapter about? What do you want? It's really digging down to what's the fundamental motivation behind everything we do. I mean, if you ask people what they want, they're going to start off by saying, oh, I want a better job or I want to live somewhere different. I want a vacation, whatever. If you'd start tunneling down, why do you want those things? Why do you want this? You know, it might be I want to feel safer, more secure, whatever. I want stimulation. And you tunnel down more. In the end, people start saying, well, I'll feel better for it. And... They give it various words, but, you know, call it happiness, peace of mind, whatever. But whatever it is, we want to feel better. And I think that's our fundamental motivation is actually an inner one. And that's the point. What we're ultimately looking for is a better state of consciousness, a better state of mind. And I think it's really important to recognize that and see that's what's behind all the other wanting, the surface wanting. So, you know, the question then is, What's the most efficient way to be more at ease, to be more at peace in ourselves? How do we approach getting a better state of mind? And so in terms of the book, I see, you know, when we let go of something, we usually feel a better state of mind. We feel more at ease, some relief, something like that. Yeah. And as you know, I mean, we have things turned around most of the time where we feel that this particular outer experience or that particular outer experience will give us what we lack. And all the wisdom teachings say, well, that ultimately you are or you possess deep within an ocean of happiness. And that's what you're actually searching for. And all these outer things are just sort of pale reflections of that. Most of these teachings, a lot of these teachings don't say you can't have any of those outer things. They just say, make sure you have 
that foundation that you actually possess deep within and that you're neglecting, and then, well, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're looking for these things. That, that's why we get distracted by Sudoku or the phone or whatever <laughs> it is. Deep down, I mean, I look at myself, I think I'm going to feel better for it. You know, if I solve this Sudoku, I'm going to feel better. It's there. And, and so it's beginning to recognize that's there everywhere. But you're right, when we taste that, you know, through meditation or whatever, when we can begin to bring that feeling into our lives more, then what we want begins to shift. We begin to realize, I don't need to do this in order to be happy. I'm already feeling okay. I don't need to do that to feel okay. And then our actions, I think, become more in line with what the situation is requiring rather than what our frustration or whatever else is requiring. So we, we can begin to act more in tune with the world, I think, when we're feeling that inside. So as you say, it's not about giving up things. I think that's that's an old idea. We have to give up this. We have to give up you know, material things or even like the Buddha had to give up eating or whatever. It's not about giving up things. It's about connecting with our own being and and the peace that's there in our being and then acting in the world. Yeah. And if acting in the world, connected with your being, includes a game of Sudoku or whatever you pronounce it, yeah. Sudoku every now and then, no big deal. Don't beat yourself up over it. It's a nice break in the routine. And I play an online game of solitaire once in a while. It's just a fun little challenge to see how quickly yeah. I can solve it and, you know, things like yeah. that. It's nice. I don't even think of it as a guilty pleasure. It's just a fun little thing to do to kind of change yeah. a pace. A little break, yeah, yes. Yeah. A little dopamine rush as well. <laughs> it probably is, yeah. Or whatever the neurochemical of frustration is if you, if you can't solve it. <laughs> so then returning to natural mind, you kind of alluded to it just now. The implication is, the way you phrase it there, is that we actually once were in a state of natural mind, and there is a state of natural mind that we may have come from or that at least we can return to. So what do we mean by natural mind? Yeah. What I mean by it, I, mean, I know other people use the phrase slightly differently, I mean how we feel, how the mind is when we're not in danger, when we're not caught up in need, something like that, when the mind isn't perturbed by worry, concern, planning, whatever. The unperturbed mind is what I call natural mind. It's how we are when everything is okay in our world, when everything is okay in our world, and we're not creating lots of discontent in our imagination, when we let go of all that thinking we do about what might happen or might not happen, when we let go of all that discontent, then the natural, then we feel at ease. We feel relieved. We feel content. I mean, that's it's the opposite to discontent. When we let go of discontent, we feel content. And so I call that the natural state of mind. So it's not something... Natural mind isn't something we achieve or get or find. It's something we remove the veils to because all our thinking and worry, discontent, etc., is veiling the fact that our natural state is one of ease and peace. So, I mean, what you're saying about there's an ocean of happiness we need to find, I treat it slightly differently. We are, at our root, happy. And it's not that we need to find it, but we need to remove that which is standing in the way of our noticing that. I agree with that. You have to be careful when you try to phrase these things because they're subtle and it's, it's oh, easy to oh, easy, distort yes. it. 
We don't have to find the sun. It's just maybe if the clouds drift away, then, oh, there's the sun. It's always been shining. I just didn't see it because there were some clouds. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Good analogy. Yeah. Yes. And this thing about the natural mind being the state that we're in when everything is okay, I think you phrased it that way, that again sort of points to we need to have ideal outer conditions to be in that state of mind. But thinking of the Gita again, Lord Krishna is depicted as having this smile on his face, even though he's in the middle of two armies and of this tremendous <laughs> horrible battle is about to ensue. But it characterizes his state of mind. He's not perturbed. He's just sort of in this state of wisdom and contentment, regardless of dire outer circumstances. Right. And I'm not suggesting we need to sit in natural mind the whole time. It's not about that's where we need to be. There are people who can be there. I see it, you know, the discontent is a very natural thing at times. If there's something that's affecting us in our world, there's some danger, there's some need that's not satisfied, it's completely natural to feel discontent. There's nothing wrong with that. And the discontent is the motivation to go and do something to improve our world so that we can be better as a human being. So the discontent has a role. My point is that a lot of the times when there is no need for discontent, right now I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm fed, I'm the temperature's right, there's no danger, no threats, I can be in a peaceful state. But then what happens is in my imagination, I start creating discontent. So I would, you know, I might imagine, well, what's Rick going to say next? I wonder if I can answer that or whatever. <laughs> and I immediately go into discontent and I'm not at peace anymore. I've created discontent. So I think a lot of our discontent is self-created where, you know, solving problems that don't exist and may never exist or going over things in the past we weren't happy with or the opposite, you know, hoping this is going to happen or whatever. For me, it's about a balance. We need to be in, we need to be concerned at times. We need to be planning, maybe worried, whatever. We need that at times. And we need to be able to return to that natural state of contentment. So it's, it's an alternation in life. But I think the ideal would be that we spend the majority of our time, that's probably what we could be, the majority of our time, we're feeling at ease, we're, we're feeling at peace, and then losing that when we need to, and then returning. Yeah, but haven't you found after 50-something years of practice that there's a baseline of contentment that is just much more full and solid than it was 40, 50 years ago. And that on that baseline, sure, you have your, your ripples of ups and downs, but there's a stability. You know the old analogy, if someone's a multimillionaire, he could gain and lose thousands and he wouldn't hardly notice. If someone's a pauper, gaining or losing five or ten dollars is a big deal. Yes, and it, it's very subtle. I mean, I only I noticed that over the years when I actually pause to notice it. It's not for me, it's not something that's like a remarkable thing, but I just notice how I'm not so caught up, not so upset by things, because that it's there or I would put it's not there the whole time, but I, I, I can access it more easily. I I know what that's like. I know how to just, you know, turn my attention within and like, ah, here it is. Um, and it's there. I mean it's there supporting you even if you're not attending to it. I'll tell you a story about a month ago, I was up uh, playing pickleball, which is a sport, kind of like tennis, but better. And 
there's a chain we had up there to keep the roller skaters out. And I was stepping over that chain and I caught my foot on it and fell flat on my face on the concrete, broke my fall with my wrists, sprained one of my wrists. My, you know, it was all scabbed and bloody and everything. And as that experience was happening, it almost brought to the forefront this sort of luminous silence or which is a field of contentment that was there already. But in contrast to the extremity of what I was experiencing, it became also much more obvious. So I, I really feel like that's there all the time. And you don't have to like make a fuss about it or pay attention to it all the time or anything else. But it's this continuum that supports everything, even if you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. And, you know, there's many stories of people who are suddenly in extreme circumstances, something whatever it is, something happens and they just, they do just let go and it's like they drop into this state of peace. And if it's not, if it's something you're not used to, it can be quite, quite a startling thing, I think, to suddenly feel, my God. Or you notice the stillness, you notice that inner stillness that there. I mean, that's another way that I relate to it is it feels at ease, it feels content, but also it has this quality of stillness. There's an inner stillness that's there. But if there's something else going on, you don't notice the stillness, you know, like you know, if you're in a room and the radio's playing, you don't notice the stillness of the room. But you turn the radio down, turn the fridge off, you begin to notice, ah, yes, there's a stillness here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump ahead to a chapter title that you have later on called Free Won't. And the reason I wanted to jump ahead to that is that I think what you say in that chapter, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I remember, we grow in the ability to nip impulses in the bud or thoughts, which otherwise, you know, I thought of the analogy of a river, which if you try to do something to the course of the river way down near the mouth of it, you really won't succeed because the river has pretty much run its course. But if you do something up near the source of the river, you can influence the whole river, its direction or the color of the water, whatever. So like that with thoughts and impulses, if you can catch them at their inception deep within, you can either not express them or express them differently or something. Whereas commonly, People are at the mercy of, of those impulses because they don't become aware of them until they're fully ripened and ready to, to burst. Yeah. I call it free won't as opposed to free will because the way we usually think of free will is we have the, well, it's a question, to choose something. Can we actually make a choice to do something or not, to think something or not? I see free won't as the, almost the opposite. It's a choice. We have that power to make a choice when we notice we're getting caught up or beginning to get caught up in some thought. When we notice that, we actually have the choice not to follow that thought any further. It may come back again, but at that moment, we can make that choice not to follow that thought, that particular thought any further. And that's, that's what I call free won't. And it, it saves us a lot of tension, anxiety, or doing things that we wish we hadn't done, or just, just getting caught up in stuff. It's the choice to pause that line of thinking, just not to follow it. And so it's, it's a different sense of freedom. Instead of, we normally think of freedom as freedom to do something, have something, whatever, or it's freedom of speech or where we live. It's freedom from, and it's freedom from that thinking that gets in the way. It's, it's basically egoic thinking. We have the choice to step out of it whenever we want. Yeah. And I think that the 
ability to have that choice is something that grows over time. It's like any skill. You know, you don't become a professional baseball player uh, overnight. You have to spend years really developing that talent, even if you have an aptitude for it. So people shouldn't feel like failures if they hear what you just said and find they can't do it. There are things you can do, and we'll discuss them more as we go along, which will culture or develop the ability to do that sort of thing, to be not at the mercy yeah. of our whims and impulses. Right, yeah. And I think coming back to what we're saying about, you know, just be able to be quiet, to come back to our own beingness center, when we do that, we can become, I think we begin to notice more our thinking Usually it's so caught up in our thinking we don't even realize yeah. we're busy thinking. And as we begin to step back, we go, ah, there's that thought again. So we, we can begin to just have a little more separation from it, not being so attached to the thinking or not being so involved in it. We can just choose, ah, okay, I'm not going there. I'm just choosing not to follow you right now. The word overshadowed is appropriate here. You've, you'll recall that word being used a lot in our original training. The movie screen analogy, everybody's familiar with that. The screen is overshadowed by the movies playing upon it, and that's meant to illustrate how thoughts and other sensory experiences overshadow the self or overshadow pure consciousness. And obviously the, the point of the analogy is develop the awareness of pure consciousness such that it can't be overshadowed. Yeah, yeah. I always have again, slight difficulties with the term pure consciousness. What does it actually mean? Does it mean consciousness without any experience or just noticing what is actually happening in consciousness without the overlay of all the other things? I think sometimes the idea of pure consciousness, people have this feeling it's going to be some completely empty state where just consciousness on its own without any object of consciousness. My experience is, I would say I've never experienced that. There's always some object of consciousness, even if it's a very, very faint object, like it's noticing, ah, this is lovely or whatever it is. This, uh, here's the still, whatever it is. So I think it's, for me, it's about just being aware, conscious, just noticing what is actually our experience in the present moment. It's consciousness without the overlay of all the stuff the, that's veiling it. Yeah, but uh, the idea, as you know, is that our fundamental nature is consciousness and that it's not merely individual, it's unbounded and eternal, everlasting, ancient, all that stuff, and that it's generally overshadowed, so we take ourselves to be this little time-space-bound physical right. thing, and right. all the sensory experiences which impinge upon consciousness blotted out to a great extent. But as you've said, you, you've had experiences where there's hardly any sensory experience, just some faint little thing. And it seems to me there would need to be in order to even have the thought of, whoa, here it is. If you're thinking you're in state of pure consciousness, in that sense you're not, because you're thinking. Right. I'm not saying you know that's something we achieve or discover. I mean, I think you're right. From a philosophical point of view, yes, everything ultimately is consciousness. Yeah. Here's a question that came in that's relevant to what we're saying. This is from Marie in Colorado. What does it mean to experience in a way that is absolutely free from all conceptual and perceptual lenses? Being free from all perceptual and conceptual lenses is a little tricky. I think it's, for me, it's being free from most of them or, or progressively free from more and more of them. It's very hard to be free from all, all lenses. I think, you know, it's almost part of being aware is we have some lens, it's a, but can we choose the lens? Can we change the lens through which we're seeing things? So what it would be like to be free of all lenses, 
coming back to you know just being in the present moment here is this experience whatever it is the sounds the sights we easily get caught up you know we see i noticed the other day i was out for a walk and i heard a bird and then i saw it and it's like immediately my mind goes what is that bird i've never seen that bird before i'm off i'm and instead of saying just there's this incredible view in front of me i was off into some discussion about it in my mind but I, I would say to be free in that sense is just to be able to just be open to the moment as it is without any thought or discussion or concern or explanation or any of that. But again, I think, you know, the more we've been talking about meditation coming back to ourselves, I think the more we do that, what I found is the easier it is to be free of these things that distract us, the internal distractions. I sort of say we're self-distracting creatures. We continually distract ourselves from the present moment. Yeah. I guess a lens distorts something. And even the great saints that we revere, they had their opinions and sometimes they had political preferences. Or Papaji was said to like be a big soccer fan. I forget who he was rooting for. He'd get really angry if the other team won. So a person can have their opinions and their preferences and, and all that stuff and still be in a marvelous state of human development. We're yeah. We're going to become automatons with no opinions or preferences. Right. And I think that's where we think of whatever we want to call it, awakening, enlightenment, in these glorious terms that everything is perfect and we're going to be completely free of all that stuff. I don't think it's like that at all. It's more, how can we stay in touch with that inner, what you talked about, that inner quietness, being, peace, along with what we're doing? To me, it's quite okay to be a football fan of a certain club or whatever. It's part of how we are. I see there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong. So it's not about becoming this ultimate pure individual. I mean, life, well, it might be very peaceful, but it's like then there's other things to do. But I think we do, I'm just going back a second there. I think, as you probably know, in deep meditation, particularly when I go on long retreats and the mind really settles down, takes a few days for that to happen then there is just that abiding in the stillness just being there in the stillness and it's just it's that delicious thing of just tasting it and then the realization comes for me it's like ah that's what they were talking about this is what the great masters were talking about this is what they were pointing to and then you know i, I come back into the world but having tasted it is wonderful and it's a motivation to go back there again and also it then becomes easier I think the more you taste that, the more I taste that, the easier it becomes to drop back and recognize it. Yeah, your your nervous system changes and adapts to being able to function that way more and more all the time. You said somewhere in your book that we make such a big deal out of enlightenment, but it's really much simpler and more attainable than it's often made out to be. What do you mean by the word enlightenment? I tend not to use the word much myself. I mentioned the book as a way of sort of diffusing the term. I mean, people have this idea, and I think it's almost a self-replicating idea in our sort of spiritual society, like it's going to be some wonderful state we attain where we're going to be permanently blissed out and whatever it is, and we're going to 
you know, have marvelous insights and experiences. I mean, those things can happen, not to say those things don't happen. But to me, it's more, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment. I use the word awakening. And it's awakening from the dream of our egoic thinking mind where we get caught up in you know, our stories, our thoughts. It, it's waking up from that, again, waking up to how it is to be here right now in this experience and waking up to ourself, what we actually mean by the self, the I. So I like the term awakening and it's not something we achieve again so much. It's something that begins to unfold and begins to happen. We just gradually become more awake as we've been talking about, you know, less distracted by our self-created discontent and things. As that happens, we are waking up, waking up to this in Ram Dass's terms to being here now and I'm not sure there's so, any end to it I also kind of no. see it the way you just described it and I think of like the word education if, if someone said I am educated then what is the implication that you couldn't learn anything new same with enlightenment I, I don't see any end point or final right. achievement beyond which you couldn't possibly have any no. deeper realization Going back to our early teacher, one of the things he said that really caught me by surprise at the time was he said he was talking about cosmic consciousness. And he said cosmic consciousness is just the normal state of consciousness. And at the time I thought, what's he mean by that? You know, but he explained it. It's just, but that, that's how we well, are. We're coming back to our normal state rather than this self-distracted state. Good. Someone sent in a question, which I might as well ask now. He's um, Mike from... Chilliwack, British Columbia, said, I would consider myself a beginner on the spiritual path. I have been reading book after book for the past two years. I am reminded quite often that books only take us so far. What are your thoughts or experience on this subject of books only taking us so far? Yes, I agree. I think books or talks or even you know, listening to us talking is information and hopefully the books, whatever, can be inspiring, they can be motivating, and we can learn our understanding about the spiritual path process can deepen. But ultimately, the books won't do it. Ultimately, it comes back to our own personal experience, our own personal, we're talking about letting go, awakening, meditating, not following the thoughts, whatever it is, it comes back to practice. We have to find a practice that really helps us personally begin to access these quieter, more content states of mind. Yes, read books, but also find some form of practice, meditation or whatever. There's other practices that help you begin to experience what the books are talking about. But also, too many books can be confusing because you read one book and it says this, another book says this, another one says that. And it's like you get into which one is right. So avoid that thing of comparing which one is right. In the end, just coming back to practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is true of anything. I mean, you couldn't become a really good cook just by reading cookbooks or a really good tennis player just by reading tennis books and so on. You have to have the practice, the actual experience. And knowledge and experience complement and supplement one another. And I, I get what you're saying about reading too many things. Maybe it's appropriate at one stage more than at other stages. I think if I didn't have a regular steady practice that I've been doing for decades, it would drive me a bit crazy actually doing what I'm doing now. 
delving into one teaching or teacher every week, uh, one after another. But with that sort of foundation I have, it, I find it enriching. Yeah. And you know, there was a phase when I was reading all lots of different spiritual books. I can't remember when I last read a spiritual book. Well, occasionally I'll pick one up, but it's very occasional, very occasional. So Mike might be wondering, okay, well, just as there are so many books, there are so many practices, and I don't have the time or the money to try them all. How do I figure out which one to try? And how long should I try it before giving up and trying something else if it doesn't seem to be working for me? My advice would be to go for the simplest to start with. You know, you can do Tibetan practices where you imagine some deity and you imagine different lights and different Tibetan letters around them and this and that. And You can do that for hours until the mind eventually gives up. And when it gives up, you drop into silence. But no, I would say go for the simple practices and not things that are going to promise you it's going to take three years or whatever till you get something. Find something that when you first start practicing it, you notice some effect. I think that's important. So I would say some form of simple meditation to start with, whether it's mindfulness or the sort of thing we've been talking about, you know, just even just that pausing, you know, doing that, but then doing that for longer periods of time, just pausing the thoughts, noticing how that feels. Simplicity and ones that you feel have some effect from the beginning, then that can deepen and take you on. But don't stick at something just because someone's told you this is the path. I mean, I meet people who've done somewhere and they're not getting anywhere for years. But, you know, well, I read this is the only way. This is what you've got to do. There is no only way. There are ways that are more effective. When you first learned yeah. to meditate, when was it, 66, 67, something like that? 67, yeah. What was your initial experience? Did something happen right away? Yes, well, when I first learned to meditate, nothing much happened. I was actually at Cambridge, and there were a couple of Buddhist teachers there. And one was teaching, sort of Vipassana. He was a Southeast Asian teacher. And I tried that, and, and nothing really happened for me. And then also there was a um, Tibetan Lama in Cambridge who was teaching, you know, these complex practices. And I tried that, and nothing happened because I was interested in meditation. And, th and then, you know, I tried TM and it was like the very first session. It was like, ah, that sense of relief dropping in. It's like, ah, I'm actually, yes, there was something here. And because of that, it's the initial practice, initial experience of just been thinking whatever it was, the mantra and, and nothing changed. I wouldn't have kept at it for long, but just because the experience was completely reaffirming the, the practice. Yeah. yeah, me too, from day one. And I've never missed one, actually, since then. Okay, an innovative species. Changing gears here. I don't know if this is your note from the book or mine, but have technological advancements made things better or more difficult? Interesting question. The pace of change. Since we've referred to Marshy several times, the first time I ever saw him was at Poland Spring, Maine in 1970. And he, I remember a lecture he gave in which he talked about the pace of change. And he kept using the word survival of the fittest. And he said, we have to be fittest. And he said the pace of change, and it was nothing in 1970 like it is now. Now it's really ramped up. But he said, you know, it's just fast and it's going to get faster. And he, he said, it's like if you have a donkey and he's carrying a heavy load, you've either got to lighten the load or strengthen the donkey. 
donkey. And he said, I don't know if we can lighten the load because life is just going to get more and more fast-paced and complicated. So you have to be fitter. You have to be stronger. Yes. Ah, this is a whole other book I'm working on. Oh, good. Its current working title is either The Evolutionary Explosion or The Exponential Explosion. Mm -hmm. But it deals with where you started. The effects of technology. First of all, the acceleration, the increasing pace of change is inevitable. It's positive feedback. The more advances that are made, the more they facilitate future advances. And that always leads to some form of exponential growth. So, yes, we are seeing technology changing so fast. How many of us, you know, 30 years ago would have, you know, seen the web, cell phones, the web was just beginning, but all that we now take for granted, streaming, social media, all the other stuff, artificial intelligence, cars run by computers, and, you know, all that's happening in, in many other areas, scientific advances, medicine, etc. And there's a cost to this. There's a cost in terms of the actual stress that acceleration puts on all the systems involved. Stress is usually defined as the inability to respond to change. And it's not only the things you mentioned, but it's things like the pandemic and political polarization and fake news and conspiracy theories. And there's just so it seems like there's this ramping up of craziness that people have to deal with on top of everything else that's impacting their personal lives. And also it means uh, an accelerating consumption of resources and also climate change. Climate change, we can pin it down to the CO2 release, but why are we releasing so much more CO2? Why are we burning so much more fossil fuel? A, because we've got the technology where we want that, and because there's many more people now, that's also been accelerating, using oil, using fossil fuels. So that's an indirect result of the acceleration. What I see and what this book's about is this, there's two sides to the technological acceleration. And we are moving into a world that's going to be unimaginable to us technologically what we can do, particularly as artificial intelligence comes. I think we're moving into what I call the age of intelligence, moving out of the information age to the intelligence age. And no idea where we're going to be in 10, 15 years' time. It will seem like magic to us now. And at the same time, the stress of all this is going to mean that the system is beginning to break down at the same time, whether it's personal, social, political, economic systems, global systems, whatever it is, they're beginning to break down. So we're moving into a world in which these two things are happening in parallel. How that's going to be, I don't know. But it's just seeing seeing these two are coming together. Sometimes the question is actually, why is it that the most creative so-called intelligent species on this planet is also the most destructive And I think that they're two sides of the same coin, actually. You really can't have one without the other when you get to technological growth. I'm going off now. That's okay. That's interesting. It's the combination of three things. Um, It comes back to what you're saying about innovation. With human beings, we rapidly grew a larger brain, about three times the size of other great apes. We developed speech, language. I mean, many creatures have language, but we can communicate with each other. We can share our learning, share our discoveries, and that's part of culture. So we have this ever-broadening collective knowledge, and we have these things, hands, these wonderful manipulators, particularly the thumb, and you put those three things together, and you have this incredibly innovative species that can dream up new ideas, make things, whatever. So these three things together 
the brain to think about it, the language to share ideas, and the hands to do things make us a really amazing, innovative species. You look at chimps, don't have the the speech. They have language, but they don't have the speech like we do. They don't have that collective body of scientific, cultural knowledge. On the other hand, you take the cetaceans, like whales, dolphins, they seem to have sophisticated languages, which we don't understand. Whales have much larger brains than us, but they don't have hands. Well, they do. They have vestigial hands. The, the five fingers are there, but they're wrapped up in flippers. They can't do anything. Right. They can't make anything. So they haven't become a technological species. And so they are still living. They haven't accelerated their development. They're sort of evolving at a steady, natural pace. They've been around for tens, twenties of millions of years. So they're not, they're not subject to the acceleration. They're still more in harmony with their environment. What we're seeing, the acceleration and its side effects, I think are what happens when you have what I call a technologically empowered species, which we are, a technologically empowered intelligence, rather. So I think you just said that given our various capabilities and intelligence, we can't help but screw things up. We can't help but sort of have a destructive influence. But isn't there another component which could somehow be developed sufficiently such that we can do all these marvelous technological things without being destructive, whether that would be development of the heart, development of uh, higher consciousness or higher wisdom or something along those lines? Yes. That can certainly happen. And, you know, there's definitely lots of, <laughs> lots of room for improvement, lots of room. But that doesn't take us off the acceleration itself because we're still innovating. We may be innovating in different areas. And that this fact of the positive feedback of innovation just breeds more innovation. The acceleration itself is going to keep on going. So it's more the stress of the acceleration on the systems rather than the destructive choices we make. It's the actual stress of the acceleration. But maybe acceleration would be okay if it's not destructive. In other words, we could more rapidly develop benign, beneficial technologies without any destructive consequences or side effects. I don't know. That's a possibility. It is a possibility. Like batteries, for instance. It would be great if we could develop really good batteries that could store a lot of electricity and that weren't large and, and that didn't utilize a lot of precious natural resources and then we'd have to mess up other people's environments in order to get them. There's right. some kind of battery now that involves iron and oxygen or something that is promising that are very plentiful elements. And uh, so something yeah. like that, you know, there could be all kinds of technologies that would come along. Because a lot of the promising uh, technologies now, the solar power and stuff, require minerals and so on that are hard to get and that are precious and that you know mess yeah. up the environment. So they're kind of mixed blessings. Yeah. But then, you know, that would just encourage us to be driving more cars with electric, electric vehicles. and Which might be okay we if have... we could derive the electricity in a healthy well, way. What's the environmental cost of producing a car? All the raw materials that go into it, yeah, yeah. the energy that <laughs> So I don't know how it's all going to work out either. Maybe it's going to go up against a brick wall where we're just going to have to be forced to curtail our activities because things will just break down to the point where we'll be forced to stop. Right. And that's what I see is the acceleration is going to slow down because of, well, the turbulence. I mean, if you're driving a car, the car has a top speed, not because it's mechanically limited, but because of the air resistance. And that's why you 
design better aerodynamic cars, structures, so that they can go faster or be more efficient. But there's a limit to how fast a car can move. Same with a ship. A ship has a top speed, depending on its size, etc. And however much more power you put into it, it won't go any faster just because of the, the drag of the water on it. So I think there comes a time when the side effects of the acceleration begin to dampen it. So it begins to stop or, or even slow down. It's not going to go on forever. I think that will happen. But the turbulence will be the effects in the system, whatever it is, and we may be forced to. Energy may not be so abundant. Many of the things we take for granted now are that may be curtailed. Who knows? All right. Well, a question came in from <laughs> Angie in Boise, Idaho, which is kind of related to what we're talking about right now. She said, can you please help me better understand your statement, our whole civilization is an unsustainable mode of consciousness? Did you question it? Did you phrase it that way? No. <laughs> can you uh, extract something from that question? I was saying the acceleration in technology and science and understanding is going to inevitably have side effects, the stress of the system. It's not that our consciousness is unsustainable at all. Some of our thinking is, you know, you're pointing to making bad decisions that cause damage, cause danger. That can happen. But that's not our root consciousness that's doing that. That's just what we're caught in in terms of our priorities and what we think is important, which so often is geared around financial efficiency and things in this culture. I don't think there's anything wrong with us. I don't think there's anything wrong with us. There's no blame. This is the sort of situation that I think any technologically empowered species starts getting itself into. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like saying there's nothing wrong with a teenager. There isn't. I mean, it's a developmental stage and the teenager's trying all kinds of things and, you know, making some mistakes and acting kind of crazy. But if they don't kill themselves, they'll grow out of it. Yeah, yeah. In a way, I think, you know, we need to have some forgiveness for ourselves, yeah. for humanity. We need to have some forgiveness. It's like, okay, this is what's happened. This is how it's happened. And not to get into anger and blame. I don't think they're useful. I had an email from somebody the other day just saying he was amazed at how I wasn't angry at this and wasn't angry at that and all these things that he's so angry with. He said, how can I be not so angry at all these things? And it's like, you know, I think anger comes from the belief that we could have done something better, something, somebody's done something wrong. And I say, see, this is the trajectory we've been on and understanding it is the root, of, I think, of any forgiveness, is understanding how we got to this situation. Yeah, as George Harrison sang, with every mistake we must surely be learning, while my guitar gently weeps. You could say, I often feel, that everybody really is doing the best they can. Why would they not? You don't say, I'm really going to screw this up, you know, on purpose, because I don't want to do... But, you, you know, you try to do the best you can to accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish, but we're all limited, and we all make mistakes. <laughs> And we're all shaped in different ways. But I think we do. We all try to do the best that we can within our limitations, our framework, our opportunities. Here's a question that came in from Jack in Canada. How has your view of consciousness slash metaphysics slash spirituality changed over these past seven years? I'm, I guess he's referring to since the last time we talked. You talked about the negative epiphany you had in one of the videos from a recent SAND conference where you said that you realized, I don't know anything. Could you elaborate on that? Does that apply to metaphysics? Yes, definitely it does. Yes, in fact, it applies to the talk we had seven years ago. I was 
expounding how I see consciousness is fundamental and various arguments about paradigms in science and what needs to happen. And the shift happened, the epiphany happened about probably four years ago now, three, four years ago. I realized I can be very good at arguing my point of view. I can be pretty good at it and I can argue against other people and I can pick the flaws in other people's arguments about consciousness. You know, there's so many people talking about consciousness and all this stuff. And then there's just this suddenly, what do I know? What do I know? And I realized it was another ego attachment. I was getting attached to my idea of what the universe is all about and why it's, why it's fundamentally conscious and how it all works out. It's just a hypothesis. It's just my own little metaphysical wondering. And it's like, so what? That's where the title of the talk came from. What do I know? Not what do I know, it's what do I know? And I let go of that whole thing, and I haven't really talked about that hardly at all ever since. I don't see the point, really. It led me back to, you know, what is important is what do I know about how we can wake up, how we can become better, more compassionate human beings. That's what's important rather than metaphysical pontificating. I think that you used the word hypothesis. I think that we can arrange all of our hypotheses along a spectrum. And there's some that I think we're justified in being quite sure about. Like, I'm really sure the earth is not flat. A lot of smart people agree with me, and there's plenty of evidence. I'm almost as sure that we actually did land people on the moon. Things yeah. like that. It's really quite sure. It would be such a far-fetched thing to prove that we didn't. But then a lot of these philosophical things that we like to talk about, even things like, you know, life after death and reincarnation and all that stuff, the evidence is not as abundant. We have intuitive feelings about it and even certainties, but the evidence is not as hard as it is with some of these other things I mentioned. So we don't have to fight over them or anything. We can just, if we find them inspiring or if they help make sense of the world, great. But we don't take them as... You're going to go to hell if you don't believe in them. Right, right. They're interesting. I got a lot of satisfaction out of exploring those ideas. <laughs> Wrote a couple of books on stuff. Oh, Irene just uh, passed me a note saying, don't send me emails saying the, the earth is flat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter, go ahead. Yes, it was a self-entertaining phase of my life. Which was? The metaphysical pontificate. Yeah, yeah. It was fascinating. I mean, absolutely fascinated by what is consciousness? How does it arise? Does it arise? Is it primary? And I went down that journey pretty deeply for 20 years. I'm glad I did. But in the end, it came to, I went as far as I could. And then I found myself just reiterating and becoming attached to my view. And it was that that attachment or letting go of that attachment, just like... Okay, I still find it interesting. I was reading some stuff I wrote the other day on it. I thought, wow, that's really good stuff. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> then my mind went, maybe I should write a book on this. It's like, <laughs> ah. Well, when we ponder that stuff, it's a little different than looking at NASA photos of the, the Earth or, or something. We're kind of going on in our subjective spiritual experience that we've been developing over the years, and we're going on real subtle intuitions about the way things seem to work and it's a very subjective thing and then we can also look to the perennial philosophy of wise people throughout the world over the ages saying very similar things and that gives us a little bit more confidence but all these ideas are still somewhat speculative how can they not be what was the question asking what was my epiphany or what was yeah 
Something yes. you announced in a sand talk or something? Yes, it was the last one, a recent when sand was still giving physical conferences. Yes, it was a, a talk I gave. And I started off the talk by just talking about, because people know me for talking about this stuff, how really saying I'm not going to talk about this stuff and this is why. And I want to talk about how do we personally, for want of a better word, wake up. All right, well, let's get back to that topic. You have a chapter in your book called Imagine Realities. And there's a quote here from Mark Twain. I don't remember if it was in your book or if I pulled it from somewhere else. But he said, uh, I am an old man and I have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Yeah, yeah, that's the quote. <laughs> and that's you know, what we touched on before about how we create so much trouble, so much discontent, worrying about planning for things that actually probably never, never happen. I think that, that's a central part of the book, that we create in our minds the stuff we get attached to, and that all of that is veiling the natural mind, the natural state of contentment. It's like the more worried you are about what might happen, etc., etc., basically, coming back to where we began, you know, am I going to be happy in, in the future? The fundamental motivation is, am I going to be content? Am I going to be at peace in the future? We can be so concerned with that that we can't be content in the present moment because of the discontent we're creating about what's going to happen in the future or not happen. It's a primary thing for me is seeing that when it happens and letting go of it. There's a practical side to it. In Los Angeles, they need to have building codes that would account for earthquakes that might happen. You can't just sort of ignore the fact that there might be some. Or, for instance, preparing for possible pandemics things like that. But obviously, in our own personal lives, we very often fuss and bother about stuff that might happen, which probably won't. And if it does happen, we'll probably be less prepared for it because we've been worrying so much than if we had just cultivated a calm, centered state of mind and confronted it when it arose. Yeah, we need to be planning, interacting with the world, doing whatever is the best we can do. There's nothing wrong with that and thinking things through. That's where our creativity comes in. It's the unnecessary worrying. I mean, I I had it recently where I was worrying about what would happen when I met up with a friend, a conversation, you know, and planning, how should I approach this? It was going to be a difficult subject. And how should I approach this? Should I do it this way? And what if he says that? And what, what if this happens? And it's like, I was going through all this stuff. We met up. Totally different reality than what I'd been going through in my head. I'd created this how it was going to be and worrying about it. And the reality was totally different. Well, your book is an Eckhart Tolle edition or something. So the power of now. In fact, I remember him describing how he goes to give a lecture. And he's sort of very vividly described his experience of being in the now like okay i i get in the car and i'm right i'm riding to the lecture and i'm not thinking at all about the lecture i'm just riding in the car and then i get to the lecture and i get up on stage and i'm not thinking about the lecture i'm just getting up on stage and then i start to speak and somehow it just all comes out (laughs) of course you can't always do that with things but uh it works for him yeah and it's it's funny i mean it's worked for me at times I tend to be an over-preparer for talks, which can be a disadvantage. But sometimes, you know, I just literally, I do what Eckhart does. I just go in without knowing what I'm going to talk about, not worrying about it, just being quiet. And some of the best talks I've given have just come out of not knowing what I'm going to say. 
I'll often be more creative. It gives me the space to start putting ideas together that I hadn't put together before, or also just feeling the audience relating to them rather than what is it um, I think I should be saying next. Mm-hmm. I'd love to do it as much as Eckhart does. <laughs> yeah, of course, he pretty much says the same thing over and over, so he can rely on his experience. There's an interesting section in your book about deconstructing an emotion and how physical sensations are associated with feelings. This is something I think you kind of got from Marushi because he used to talk that way, that for every emotion there's some kind of physiological counterpart and you can locate a physical sensation if you allow yourself to. Yes, yes. I don't remember getting it from him, but then a lot of ideas seep yeah, in. Yeah, Yes, it's interesting. We call an emotion a feeling, and also we call sensations in the body feelings. And I think it's no accident we use the word feeling for both. And when I'm deconstructing an emotion, I'm saying there's, there's always two aspects to it. There's actually what you're feeling in the body, and there's some story going along with it. And the story is usually triggered some reaction in the body and i mean the word emotion comes from the latin it actually means a emotare means to act out what's happening is there's always what psychologists call an action tendency in any emotion there's an action tendency if you're angry the action tendency is getting ready to fight if you're scared the action tendency is getting ready to run if you're depressed the action tendency is to withdraw to hide that sort of thing and that action intended that action tendency has some quality in the body like just a faint thing of the muscles certain muscles preparing that sort of thing or or other sensations in the body so there's that side of it and the other side of it is there's something we are telling ourselves some story going on in the head about what is wrong what is right or whatever it is and the two are wrapped up together there's an analogy i've heard used which is it's like you have red and white yarn and you wrap them up into a ball from a distance it looks like a pink ball but you look closely and you've got red and white threads and that's what i call deconstructing an emotion seeing the thread of the body's feeling what's happening in the body and there's the thread of the thought that's going on we can let go of either you know that's why talk about in terms of letting go of emotions we can either begin to release what we were talking about earlier the actual being aware of what's happening in the body the tendons etc can begin to soften them and they can begin to release or we can look at the story that's happening and in fact if we didn't have a story there wouldn't be an emotion i have to say it's very hard to have an emotion without some thought about the past or future very hard to feel any emotion without some thought. And that's why I call the story, some thought about what happened or might happen or not happen. So the two are wrapped up together. Some people seem to derive satisfaction from their stories or they derive some shreds of satisfaction from the sympathy they get when they tell people their stories. I know this person who feels that she was mistreated by some spiritual teachers many years ago. And it seems to be her whole world dwelling on this mistreatment and the effect that it's had on her and the effect that it's had on her family and so on and so forth. And I keep saying, well, whatever the validity of this, you have two choices. I mean, you can keep dwelling on it and you can dwell on it for the rest of your life and, you know, you'll get some sympathy from people or you can somehow find a way of 
moving on, and then they won't have any control over you. And it kind of reminds me of that story of the Zen monks who come to the river, you know, and there's a beautiful woman there who asks to have help crossing the river, and the older monk picks her up and carries her across and puts her down, and then they walk on for a few hours, and finally the younger monk just can't contain himself any longer. He said, you know, we're not supposed to touch women. Why did you do that? And the older monk says, you know, brother, I set her down on the other side of the river. Why are you still carrying her? This letting go thing, which is key, is in the title of your book. I think some people don't even realize that it would be to their advantage to let go of, of stuff because they derive some satisfaction from holding on to it and they don't realize how nice it would be if they really did let go of it. Right, right. Yes, there's a satisfaction holding on to something. You think you're going to feel better for it in some way or another. By hope you're going to be more righteous or whatever it is, or you're going to sort things out. There's a certain satisfaction you get, but it's only a certain satisfaction. It's not a deep satisfaction, but that's, you know, as we say, deep down, what everything we're doing, we're looking because we think we're going to feel better for it. So in some way, you think things are going to be better for holding on. And you're absolutely right. You know, when we do let go, there's a much deeper satisfaction. The reward of letting go is we get what it is we think we're going to get from holding on. We get that from the letting go. So I think part of it is beginning to recognize the cost of the holding on. When we're really holding on to something, it's actually pause and say, you know, how is this affecting me if I'm holding on to this view of this other person? How is that affecting me? And not so much in, could be in the world, but how is it affecting me in my own being? How is this making me tense, for example, holding on to this idea? Because usually when we're holding on to some idea, there's some tension created in us, either, either mental tension or even physical tension. And so if we begin to notice that, if we begin to notice the cost of the holding on, that can begin to be the motivation to explore how we can let go of it. Some teachers use the analogy of you get on a train with your suitcase and you insist upon holding your suitcase not realizing that the train is carrying it now. And all you need to do is put it down, relax, and enjoy the ride because the train will do the work. But people have a hard yeah. time letting go of the suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that one. Nice yeah. yeah. And that kind of points to a deeper thing, which is that who is really the author of our actions? Are we really doing everything? Or is there some kind of deeper actor? And we're more or less just being carried along by that, and we can actually just let go of all our efforts and our sense of doership and let the divine do the doing. Yeah, I think that's, again, part of you know, the journey we're talking about, the awakening journey. A lot of our actions come from what I call the ego mind, which is the bit that's trying to keep us safe, preserve us, make sure everything's going on well in the world. And... That conditions our actions. That tells us what to do. It's really important to do this, really important not to do this. Must say this to this person. That's the ego mind trying to work things out. That determines the direction of our actions. When I think when that's not operating, we're acting, as I said earlier, more in accord with the situation. This may seem a trivial example, but it touched me one day, some years ago. I'd been on a meditation retreat and I was walking down the road and I saw this lizard on the road and it was a hot day and it was obviously not doing well it was stuck whatever it was I can't now remember the exact details of it but I found myself spontaneously without even thinking about it I bent down picked it up and put it in some grass 
And there was no thought, oh, poor lizard, I must save it, I must do this, whatever. I did it, and I watched myself doing it. I, Peter Russell, wasn't the actor. I wasn't actually, me as an individual, wasn't doing that. It was just a spontaneous action I saw myself doing. It's a very small example, but it struck me at the time as quite profound, that shift between normally doing something which is deliberate, because I have decided to do it, and something that just I watched myself doing. Well, you know the phrase spontaneous right action. Really, I think one's life can get to a point where it kind of runs on autopilot and one's spontaneous impulses turn out to be the best possible things one could do or, or feel to do in every circumstance. Yeah. Yes, and I think we have, a, we have a natural wisdom in us mm -hmm. all. And then it gets overshadowed by all the other stuff that goes on. So the more we can free ourselves from that, the more that natural wisdom will just come shining through. Yeah. You have a chapter in your book entitled The Support of Nature. The phrase directly goes back to the Maharishi, who, as you probably noticed, when he was assessing how we're doing in our meditation, he wasn't so interested in, like, were we tasting the pure self? Were we having transcendental consciousness? I mean, he'd talk about it a bit, but always, he always had this question, are you noticing the support of nature more? That was his question, by which he meant, do you notice that the world seems to be supporting you? It's what I think today we call synchronicity. This happened. Wasn't it amazing? I happened to this book just appeared, I picked it up and I read this passage and it changed my life or something. You know, we call that synchronicity. All these little things that happen that tend to have a positive effect on us. His argument I found fascinating and I haven't heard it from anybody else. His argument was when we meditate, we go into a quieter state of mind, we're stepping out of the ego mind. We're letting go of those ego thoughts. And it's those ego thoughts that get in the way that cause us to do damaging things, harmful things to other people, not act appropriately, whatever it is, say something stupid. So by meditating, we're stepping out of the ego mind, all that form of thinking. And so we're sort of diffusing our action in the world. And so he said, by doing that, we are supporting nature in the most fundamental way possible. And then he says, and nature returns the favour. I mean, that's the bit that's a little sort of not quite such logical thinking. There's a bit of metaphysical thinking, but it's like nature returns the favor. We're supporting nature by getting out of the ego mind and nature returns the favor by supporting us in some way. And I found it remarkably true in my life. There's times when I come off a meditation retreat and it's ridiculous. Things happen. I can't believe it's like it's like magic is happening. The opposite, when I'm stressed, just out, worried, tense, whatever it is, magic doesn't happen. The synchronicities don't happen. So I've noticed there's a very clear correlation in my own life as to how calm, how centered I am, how much synchronicity happens, and how when I'm uncentered and tense and caught up in my ego mind, it doesn't happen. So it's something, as I say, I found an unusual explanation, but it, it's also, I found it, life shows me there's a truth to this there's a real truth to it and i know a lot of other meditators feel the same way notice the same thing oh yeah and it gets a little metaphysical to, to consider the mechanics of it but you know my understanding and, and i actually have heard marshy elaborate on this is that there are 
impulses of intelligence governing creation. There's not only a field of intelligence, fundamentally, but there are various impulses that are like, he equates them with laws of nature, and they are kind of responsible for different phenomena that are taking place. And there are certain impulses that are responsible or that influence our own personal lives. Perhaps some people refer to them as guardian angels or some such thing. But in any case, for some, this is a, a concrete perception. They perceive these things daily and regularly. I have a friend who told me that she sees this all the time, and she little clusters of these beings around people and doesn't know exactly what they're doing, but they're somehow attending to people. So I kind of have a feeling like there are all sorts of intelligences pulling the strings, helping to orchestrate the events of life. There's a verse in the Gita about you support the gods and they'll support you. I don't know if we have to use the word gods, but somehow or other, when we get attuned in the way you've described, we become more of a, an instrument of the divine. And since we're helping to fulfill a divine purpose in some way, we get the wind at our backs. We're supporting the divine, the divine supports us. Whereas if we're in sharp contradiction or conflict with that divine intelligence, why should we get the support? Some people might feel uncomfortable with that kind of terminology, but that's the way I think about it. Yeah, I know people like you who have these experiences. I I personally don't. But you have had the support of nature experience, and so have I, sometimes remarkable stuff. Remarkable, abundantly and like ridiculously sometimes. And whatever the mechanism is, I don't personally know. I hear what you're saying, that's a plausible mechanism, but I don't know. I, I just know, you know, how do I encourage synchronicity by being more in touch with my being, myself? So it works, it works. Whatever the explanation is, it works. Right, and we don't have to get all esoteric about it. I mean, you can think of the case of somebody who is abusing themselves in various ways, through drugs and alcohol and, you know, abusive behaviors and so on. Just in very mundane, obvious ways, they're screwing up their life and things aren't going to go well. You know, they're going to lose the job. They're going to lose the relationship. They're going to have this health problem or something. But there is a subtler aspect to it when things start to happen quite miraculously in one's life. Yeah, yeah. For the better. Yeah. In fact, I was looking back on my life a few years ago and realizing everything of any significance, every turning point, my whole life, it was some synchronicity or other that led to it. Everything was some or other synchronicity. I wouldn't say it's run my life, but it's been a steady influence everywhere. And have you found that a lot of times you really didn't see it coming? And in fact, when it was already coming and some situations was developing your, in your life, you might have actually been grumbling about it. But then in retrospect, you realize, wow, that was perfect. That's exactly what I needed. And I didn't see yeah. it at first. Yeah. I wasn't looking at it from that point of view. I think it's, if I went back and looked at it, it's probably the case. Yes. Yeah. In, in some instances. Um, there's another, well, there's a very important chapter on your, in your book, which we should dwell upon a bit here, uh, entitled Effortless Meditation. And you've, you alluded that earlier when someone, to that earlier when someone asked the question about what kind of meditation should I do. You said effortless. There's a phrase, the natural tendency of the mind, which you're well familiar with. Let's talk about that a little bit. We touched on it earlier when I was saying, you know, that fundamental motivation 
is a better state of mind. So the natural tendency of the mind is to, well, two things. One, to seek whatever we think is going to bring us greater ease, joy, contentment, but also left to itself without distraction from our thinking, the mind is going to sort of gravitate to that because it's just a natural sort of self-reinforcing thing. When the mind relaxes, it feels better and it wants to feel even better and relaxes even more. It's almost like I think of it as a gravity in the mind. If you stop propping up the mind with thoughts and worries and this and that and planning and all the other stuff, if you stop keeping it active, looking for something, and all of that, as I said, is looking for the natural tendency of the mind to look for something which is going to bring it greater peace. When you stop that, the mind just begins to settle down spontaneously. And I think this is important because you don't have to do anything to make the mind quiet. And this, I think, is a misunderstanding in some teachings. You've got to control thoughts. You've got to do this. You've got to banish all the things that are creating disturbance. You don't need to do anything to make the mind quiet. You need to stop doing the things which are making the mind unquiet. Right. And actually doing something can make the mind less quiet. Let's say you sit down, you think, I am going to sit here and go into samadhi and I'm not going to have any thoughts. And you start making an effort to suppress thoughts. You're just going to agitate the mind more if you do that. Yes. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People take, yeah, it's going to take you You've got to discipline the mind, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and it's going to, it's very hard work and it's going to take you years of practice. And then, you know, eventually, if you keep doing this and really control your mind, you may taste what, you know, the great masters have spoken of. And you do it. You discipline the mind, you do this, you, you know, it becomes a battle. And maybe in years to come, you do experience something. And then you go and teach that to other people because that's what happened to you. For me, it's the exact opposite. That's why I talk about meditation being effortless. The less effort you put into it, the less trying to get somewhere, because ultimately there's nowhere we're trying to get to. I think that's really important, nowhere we're trying to get to. And effort is about trying to get to some state. Again, it's just revealing, unveiling that natural state of being that's there in all of it. So the key is that we just want to set up a condition in which the sort of natural tendency of the mind will allow the mind to settle into its true nature or into its least excited state, we could say. Like diving, you know, you get up on the board and you just have to sort of take a correct angle and then gravity will take care of the rest. In a lot of meditation techniques, mindfulness, the things we've been talking about, one of the core instructions is not to follow the thought. may use different words the words I use, are not to follow the thought. When you notice you're caught up in thinking, leave the thinking behind. Don't continue with the thought. Let your attention come back, whether it's a mantra, some other inner thing, or just coming back to the present moment. And that's what I start people with these days, is just don't follow the thought. Notice how it is in the present moment. Notice your actual experience in the present moment, whatever it is. Not trying to focus on any particular thing, but just not following the thought and just coming back to how it is. And because it's the thoughts that are taking us in in the other direction, our thoughts are always taking us out in some way or other. Yeah. And we can't really get into the mechanics of it here, but even if you were using a mantra, it wouldn't necessarily involve any kind of control or concentration. There's a way of going about it that's completely effortless. Okay, yes. All these things are different ways of using mantras. Yeah. 
couple of interesting questions here. One is related to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, but maybe we can ask this from Helena in Montreal. Would you say that the spontaneous impulses are the intuitive connection with the divine principle guiding us? I have these synchronicities happening all my life, and I feel always connected with this creative force. Yes. Yes, I think that's what we've been that's kind saying. Of what we're really. saying yeah. I'm not sure I have much more to say except yes. Cheers. There's some nice stories. Nice. I mean, if you read biographies of saints and even things that happened in Jesus's life or you read autobiography of a yogi or many of these other things, books about Ramana Maharshi, this kind of stuff would happen around them all the time. And, and you know, people would be astounded by it, but it was just for them quite normal because they were so attuned to the divine that, you know, they're riding in the lap of the divine and it was supporting every little impulse of their lives. I can't remember quite how the questioner put it, but I think it was just another way of reframing the same thing. Yes. Here's a question from uh, someone named Bhavna in Texas. How do you define forgiveness? What does it mean to to you? Really, the essence of forgiveness is letting go. It's letting go of the judgments we're holding, the grievance, whatever it is. Letting go of the story of what the other person did wrong. We often think of forgiveness as like, you did wrong, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. I won't punish you, I'll forgive you. To me, it's not that at all. It's about, well, two things. It's one, letting go of letting go of the judgments, the grievances, the story we're telling ourselves about what the other person did wrong. It comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Everybody is doing the best they can in their own way, their own limitations. And who knows, whatever it is we're upset about with somebody, who knows, did they have a bad night? not sleep well? Do they have too much coffee in the morning? Have they got some major marital problem going on in the background? Who knows what's going on? If we did know, if we could completely put ourselves in the other person's shoes with all you know, their background, whatever it is that's led them to this moment, how they were feeling that day, what's going on in their life, we can understand why they may have responded like that, why they did what they did. And so I think also a deep understanding, a deep compassion for the other person can lead to forgiveness, can lead to that letting go of, of the judgment. And again, it's something, I mean, there's another teaching I've liked, which is A Course in Miracles. One of the things it points out is we don't forgive the other person to make them feel better. By letting go of the judgments and grievances, we do it for ourselves because we feel better when we, when we let go of that or when we understand the other person. So it's actually the real value of forgiveness is how we feel. And in fact, you know, the other person may not even know we were judging them in the first place, let alone that we've forgiven them. Yeah, that's an important thing. Once heard humility defined as the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. And a lot of times we create conflicts in our lives by clashing with others because we feel like well things are supposed to happen this way and then they're 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 feeling the same way and so it's two egos smashing against each other and possibly wearing each other smooth over time but if you could all right would it really matter if it goes this way instead of that way no in the big picture it really doesn't matter so let's let it go that way and see how it goes and then boom there's no hurt feelings there's no anger so what else haven't we covered that you want to be sure to cover Yeah, one thing follows on, which I think is important, follows on from what you were just saying, which is about being kind to each other. That comes out of the fact 
what we've been saying is that basically what we're all looking for is to feel okay. We're looking for a better state of mind. None of us want to be judged or attacked or criticised. We want to be loved. We want to be appreciated. Basically, we want to feel okay in ourselves. And I point out that kindness actually comes from the word kin, K-I-N. But we're all of the same kin psychologically. We're all of the same kin because we all want to be more fundamentally better state of mind. But what so often happens in a relationship, and it could be a couple relationship, a work relationship, a friend, many different sorts of relationships is you say something to me which comes from a completely wonderful, innocent place in you, but because of my stuff, I feel slightly attacked or criticised. Nothing came from you, but I, I feel that. If I'm not really fully aware of what's going on in myself, if I feel attacked, the tendency is to attack back in some way. And it's like, you know, it could be body language, just, oh, whatever, <laughs> or silence, or like, you stupid, whatever it right. is, or how dare you, how dare you say, whatever it is, we attack back. Now you feel attacked because I deliberately did attack you in some very subtle way, maybe, but I attacked you. And, you know, if you're not a fully enlightened being, you would probably respond the same way. And we get into this vicious circle whereby each person wants to be loved and appreciated and feel okay. And they're digging the knife in a little bit saying, you know, you're not actually loving me enough. You're not being nice to me. You're making me upset. I'm going to dig the knife in and twist it just a little bit. And then you'll learn the error of your ways and be nice to me. <laughs> and when two people are doing that, it's a recipe it just spirals down. Yeah. So the remedy for me is is actually removing the attack thought. So in any interaction, conversation, is having the intention, we don't always do it, but the intention is, in terms of what I have to say to this person or how I behave, the intention is that the other person feels loved, they feel appreciated, they feel understood, they feel better for it, that they actually feel better, that they don't feel attacked. And so it's catching those attack thoughts and not following them. Again, it comes back to what we said about not free won't. It's just catching them, choosing not to follow them, and having that intention that the other person, basically, that the other person feels good. This is one of the Buddha's definitions of right speech. And if you can't say something in such a way the other person feels good, it's better to retain noble silence, not as a cop-out, but until you've worked out how to say it in such a way that the other person feels good on receiving it. And there's lots of ways we can do it, you know, with criticism, you can say, I really value our connection, but I need to offer some feedback and I'm a bit afraid, I feel a bit, whatever it is. There's lots of ways where we can begin to make the other person feel okay, even when we've got to be critical. And we fail at times, but then being willing to just apologise, say, I'm sorry, yep, there was some little element of attack in there, I'm sorry, come in again, let me try and rephrase that in a, in a way that actually is more more loving. I found when you do that in relationships, when two people as a couple agree to do that, something magic happens. It's like a whole different form of love begins to enter the relationship. It's a caring love. It's a real care. Because what we're actually doing is caring for another person's inner being. I think we can be fairly good at caring for outer being. Well, not fairly good. We can be good at caring for outer being, you know, helping each other. Oh, you're having difficulty with this. Let me help you with this. We're not so good at caring for the inner being of somebody, how he actually feels. And this, to me, is 
the principle of kindness. It's the golden rule of every spiritual tradition. You know, treat others as you would like to be treated. You know, the way we would like to be treated is kindly. So be kind to others. I think it was the Dalai Lama said, was asked once, what is your religion? And he said, my religion is kindness. Speaking of religion, you know how in the Old Testament, when Moses was having it out with the Pharaoh, they, the phrase kept popping up that the, the Pharaoh hardened his heart and then did such and such or refused to do such and such. And, you know, when I think of kindness, I think of a softening of the heart which yeah. I think comes along on the spiritual path as we grow. And there's just a kind of a tenderness. Like you with that lizard in the road. I do that all the time with earthworms, which are going to dry up in the sun. I can't walk past them. I have to pick them up and put them in the grass. But there's just this sort of feeling of kind of identification or something. I can kind of feel what they're going through if they're drying up in the sun. Or like uh, I see a little snake on the trail in the park. I want to pick it up with a stick and put it off in the grass before somebody rides over it with a bicycle, you know, because I can kind of feel, right? What is the word? Empathy. Empathy. Yeah, I guess that's what that is. Empathy, being able to tune into what another person or th- or being is going to feel and then acting accordingly. So... um you mentioned some other book you're working on. Any any kind of like hot topics these days that are kind of like um, you know exciting, interesting you or inspiring you or anything like that? Yeah, actually, what we're talking about today is my hot topic. Particularly having been you know working on the book the last year, it's very much in my consciousness, and now beginning to talk about it and things. Because only published this week, mm-hmm. so. At the moment, I'm, I'm full of that. <laughs> full um, of letting go of nothing. Right. But I think, if anything, that the, not so much a topic, but what's coming up more and more is just how I can be more loving. How I can be more loving. But that's not so much an intellectual topic. It's just more of just a practice, a reflection in my life. Good. Because I know many areas where I can improve. We can all say that. Or we should all say that. Do you have anything going on that people can plug into aside from buying your book? I mean, are there any kind of webinars or anything like that planned? Yes, I have an occasional webinar. It's called Mindfulness of Being. And you just look up, mind, you go to my website and you'll see a link to Mindfulness of Being. And these are talks I give when I feel like it, basically. I, it came out of COVID. And what, what I missed with COVID is I like speaking on subjects that are of interest to me at the time. You know, and often it's a platform, I'm at a conference, and I can just go into a small group and just talk about what's interesting me and give a talk. And I realized I was missing that. And so I started these talks. When I find something that's interesting me, I will then send out an email to everybody and say, you know, a couple of weeks' time, this, this date, I'm going to be on Zoom talking about this subject, and join me if you want. And then it's a similar, you know, I talk about it, sometimes have a little meditation, and then questions and discussion. Nice. So you have an email list, obviously, you just implied, which people can sign up for if they go to your website. Right. Well, there's two, yes. You can sign up for the general email list. That's on my website, and that's clear. It's under newsletter. Sign up right there, top left. The mindfulness of being, you have to sign up separately because – about 300 people on that list. My main main mailing list is like seven or 8,000. I don't want to mail them, but I email them already saying, if you want to be alerted to these talks, then you sign up to this list. Good. I'll link to your website from your page on BatGap and to your books as well, so people make it easy for people. 
and there's you know lots more on my website. I think there's about 400 articles at my latest count. Wow. Historically, going back 20 years, you can find some of my old, very naive thinking <laughs> there as well. I'll also, on your page on BethGap, I'll link to our first conversation that we had seven years ago so people can see what we were talking about then, which, as you said, you know, you're not as concerned about now as you were then, but it was an interesting talk. I still find it fascinating, but as I say, it's not something. I went as far as I could in that direction, then I found myself getting too attached to my own thoughts. Well, thanks, Peter. I really appreciate it. It's good touching base with you. Hopefully, we'll all come out of our cocoons and meet again in person one of these days. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. And lovely to you, as always. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. As most of you know, this is an ongoing series. So if you go to batgap.com, you'll see there's an upcoming interviews page. And there's these little buttons along the right-hand side with each interview that's scheduled that you can use to set up a notification in Outlook or Yahoo or you know Google or whatever you use for such things, if you click on those buttons. And explore the menus. There are a bunch of other things on the website. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week.